Turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to begin a short series on stewardship, what it means to manage our stuff. And indeed, the title of the series is Our Stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. Moses is speaking. And he's, he's telling the people of God that they need to be careful about their conduct and what they think. And he says, verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart, verse 14, will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought you water out of the rock of flint. Verse 16, in the wilderness, he fed you with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember, verse 18, the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Lord, help us as we study. The background to this passage is that the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. They're a few months away. And Moses is doing all he can to try to help them understand what the commands of God are. Deuteronomy means this, literally, second law. This is the second time Moses is giving the law to the people. And he's making sure he gives it to the people in, in such a way that they receive it as the first time he gave it. Now, remember, the, the, the folks who received it the first time have died. Every male and female who were above the age of 20 that came out of Egypt are no longer alive. Only those who were under 20 are alive. They've been in the wilderness for a good 40 years, so the eldest person there among the people of Israel is basically under 60. Moses would be the oldest and that he started at 80 but he's giving this law to the second generation because he doesn't want the, the, the second generation to be dependent on the first generation's interpretation of the law so he's given it to them as if it came to, to them a first time but this is the second time he is reiterating it in doing so he, he, he coins this, this passage Make sure you don't forget God. Now, this has to be, at least in my estimation, one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. There are others that are equal in that Israel did quite a bit to disappoint God. And he expressed that disappointment on a regular basis because they disobeyed. But this is equal to them. Don't forget me, he says. Don't forget me. Israel, who was there in Egypt and saw water turn to blood, 
saw Egypt's cattle die from plague, yet across the street their cattle lived. Saw the sun grow dark three days, but there was light across the street in Goshen. Backed up to the Red Sea with no place to go, and it looked like Egypt was going to conquer. After all the victories that God had wrought, they scream and holler and yell at Moses, call him a horrible leader, say, we're going back. How could any leader lead their, his people to a box canyon like this? We have no way out. And all of a sudden, the Red Sea parts. Israel goes on the, through the sea and gets on the other side. They go through on dry ground, not mud. They get on the other side. And God lifts the cloud that had separated, this pillar of cloud that had separated the Egyptians from the Israelites so that the Egyptians couldn't come to the Israelites. He lifts it, and the Egyptians see this huge passageway through the sea. And they say, let's go get them. And as soon as the Egyptians go in the, the, the sea, God says, ah, time for the miracle to be over. How do you forget that? How do you forget when you were thirsty for three days where there was no water and God tested you to find out what was in your heart? He knew, but he wanted you to know. And you clamored and cried out to him and complained, thinking, you brought us out here to die, Moses. We should have stayed in Egypt where at least we had food to fill our bellies. And God brought water from a rock. How do you forget that? How do you forget that every morning, if you wanted breakfast, you didn't have to go to Safeway? You went out to your front stoop, dipped your bowl down in the grass, and pulled out a whole bunch of grain that you were able to make into flour and cook your, your breakfast and pancakes. How do you forget that? And the grain wasn't localized. We think it was grain, seed, something. They don't even know what it was. That's why they called it manna. You know what manna means? What is it? They didn't even know what it was. But it wasn't localized to one spot where the Israelites needed to stay in order to get it. The manna followed them. Has God's provision followed you? Has he made sure you're provided for wherever you are? Oh, he's good. How do you forget that, Israel? Yet Moses says, I know you. I realize who you are. You are the seed of Adam and Eve. And you are prone to disobey and go left when God says go right. You'll forget him. Because the abundance of stuff that he gives you, he's going to bless you. He's going to bless you so much, you won't even know what to do with all the blessings. He's going to bless you and make you happy, happy, really happy. But because the blessing comes to you and you've got a seed of amnesia that allows the blessing to kind of fertilize that, you'll forget that it was God who gave it to you. That blessing will blind you to his face and all you'll look for is his hand. And sooner or later, his blessing will make you forget him altogether because of the seed that's on the inside of you from Adam and Eve. And you'll think, it was the power of my own hand that did this. It was my ingenuity. I worked hard for that MBA. I got that PhD. I stayed late. I worked 50, 60, 70, 80 hours in my job. I'm the one who did this. And you'll forget The passage I want to concentrate on for the balance of this sermon is verse 18. Remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to make wealth that you might establish his covenant in the earth as he swore to your fathers 
and as it is to this day. Three points. One, remember our God. Two, recognize what he's given you. Three, the purpose for which he's given it is to ratify his covenant in the earth. He's already spoken it, but he's looking for people in whom he might make it real. That he might use as a testimony of his grace so that everybody else can understand that he is a living God and he moves in the lives of men. First of all, remember. Remember what? Not only remember God, but remember what he's done. Don't forget the fact that he has done some marvelous things for you. He has really helped you. Now lest I get all self-righteous and begin to think that somehow my humanity is different than that of the Israelites, I realize I'm prone to forget stuff too. Now maybe I'm talking to a group of people that doesn't have the problems I have. So if you don't, just identify with me a little bit. Stretch a little. But I know that I seem to have problems that when times get really difficult... My tendency, my knee-jerk response is not to say, Oh, God, this is a moment that you're going to do something that you could not do had not the difficulty come. Oh, a miracle's about to happen. You're... My tendency is to say, Hey, 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 hey. Lord, what is going on here? This isn't the way I scripted this. I don't appreciate these circumstances. That's the way my knee-jerk soul tends. It goes that way. And then I've got to use my Bible, which I try to read on a regular basis that you need to every day. I've got to use my scriptures to rein my soul in and make it do what it's supposed to do. So although I feel like things aren't right, and I feel like God has forgotten me, and it feels like he's not going to come through, I know what my Bible says. I realize he's for me. And although the circumstances say no, circumstances are subject to change. And my job is to trust him through them and not to accuse him of neglect, but to believe that he is about to set up my life so that I'll have a testimony that others can eat from later. But in order for me to do that, I've got to remember some things. That I used to be a certain way. I used to have certain... And God delivered me from the way I was. He did some miracles in my life. He has performed already for me. These are the foundation stones upon which I can base my faith for my new experiences. I can't forget that my soul would want to go that direction. I've got to remember he forgave bread of all his sins. Every once in a while you just need to wake up. And just say this to yourself. Whew, I'm not going to hell. You, you, just, you just need to tell yourself that. We're talking basic Christianity here. Bringing it down to the least common denominator of why you need to be happy. You're not going to hell. I don't care how difficult it might be here. This is a blink. This is a blink. It's, and you're done. It's a breath. 70, 80, 90 years at best, eternity is really long. It's like you get to 10 billion years and keep going. That, you don't have to experience in judgment. You ought to get happy. I mean, just get happy. Every once in a while, you just ought to get Just for that all by itself. And that came as a result of him forgiving you. Because you deserved it. I deserved it. My sinful life deserved judgment. And the gavel had sounded on the bench of eternity and said, guilty. 
God, but God, but God decided to do something for me I didn't deserve and forgave me of all my sin and paid for my sin by sending his son to make payment for me. His life was sacrificed and not mine. <laughs> I got to remember this stuff because if he did that for me while I wasn't serving him, while I wasn't interested in him, while I bypassed all his benefit, what is he going to do for me now that I'm in the camp? I'm called by his name. I'm his boy. What might he do for me now? I got to remember stuff. That's just what he's done with my past and my sinful life. What he's done to bless me is, is amazing. That's just what he forgave me for. How he has blessed me is just mind-boggling. Man, I, I, got, I got the best wife since Eve. Present company accepted. I got the best wife since Eve, and I don't know why God gave her to... She's a better woman than I am, man. She's a better Christian than I am. She, 26 years she's been with me. 26 years in December. And, and, and I haven't given her any reason to legitimately say bye. I've been faithful to her every day and plan to for the rest of my life. I love her more today than I did the day I, I said I do. She's amazing. But, but it's not like she hasn't had cause to pray. I am all man. I just want y'all to know this brother is all man. I talk a lot here, but I don't talk at home. <laughs> I'm a dude. I don't like to listen. I'm a dude. <laughs> Get to the point. Get to the point. That's the way my man says on the inside. But I have learned better. I have learned better. My point is she has reason to pray. And she still loves me. And she t still treats me sweet. She respects my authority in the house. She stood by me when... I, I, I'm more, sk more skilled now as a dad and a husband. But she stood by me when I didn't know what I was doing. By the way, husbands, your wives know. They're just so kind. They don't call you an idiot, but they know. They know you don't know what you are doing. It's amazing how God has blessed me with a woman like this. And he's blessed me with great kids. 24 down to 12. Five boys, two girls. They all love God. Every one of them. Unique in their personality. Different as night and day. But they all love God and they respect mom and dad. Amazing. I, I got you. You keep showing up. I don't know why. I don't know why. I'm a very simple guy. I'm not trying to complicate life. I'm not trying to make the gospel so profound in its articulation that you're impressed with what I say beyond what you should do. I just want to make it real easy. Love God, love people. That's all I base my life on. Love God, love people. Well, Pastor, what about, what about the, the, the seven-horned beast that rises out of the, the book of Revelation? And, and, and are you an amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist? What about the cloud in the Old Testament that seems to appear when Jesus said he's coming in the clouds later? What does that mean to you? I said, if I can give you answers, but they ain't going to help you. It's not going to help you at all. I study all that stuff. I know my, my Bible pretty well, and I've been to seminary. I got some information, but I'm not trying to share that with you on Sunday morning. I'm trying to help you be a better Christian trying to help you realize the benefit of your redemption needs to extend beyond you. 
It needs to change the world. And whether you know what the seven horns mean on the beast is not going to help you win your neighbor. It's not. It's not going to help you be a better husband. It's not going to help you be a better wife. It's not going to help you be a better father. I'm into that. Now, whatever Jesus wants to do in the end and however the book of Revelation is supposed to come about or whether you believe it's already come about, I don't care. I'm just trying to figure out how can I please, please you today, God? How can I make you happy? I'm a simple guy, and you keep showing up. This is what's amazing to me. God has blessed me with great friends, fabulous friends of 20 and 30 years, friends, 10, 15 years, friends. I'm as wealthy as any man can be, not because I have enough money, but because I am wealthy with friends. I'm rich. I am beyond filthy rich with friends, abundant. I am blessed, but I remember what I used to be. And I know that the only way I got here is because God willed it. He blessed my life and helped me. I make it a point to make sure that the joy of my salvation experience is never lost in a given seven-day period. I remember what it was like to be saved. I remember that I was a kid that probably deserved a little bit more judgment than he got. Not only was, was I not living right, I was pretending to be a Christian. And when I say pretending, it wasn't like I was trying to put on an act. I went to church, but I didn't know how to live right. And so what I said, I didn't do. And, and I was probably the guy. In fact, some guy once told me, you the kind of person that makes me not want to go to church. So there might have been a special measure of judgment just for me because just by way of economies of scale, God would, have, God would have to look at me and say, you know, it would be easier for me to get the gospel to people without you on the planet because right now they're stumbling over you. Maybe I ought to take you out and I can minister to him more effectively. But God had mercy on my life and waited till the light came on in me. And at 20, I surrendered and said, no more. I'm not going to be this way. I, I got right with God and I've been on that path ever since. And I remember, I never want to forget. Secondly, we need to recognize that he is the one who provides for us in a routine way and he is the one who provides for us in a supernatural way. I know that somebody signs your check. I got that. I realize that there's an organization to which people show up every day and they do stuff in order to make the product that's important for your survival so you can get a check. I realize that. I know there are a bunch of natural things that occur in order for you to pay your mortgage. I got it. But God is the one who is behind the scenes making sure that all those things work together for, for your good. He's the one behind the scenes allowing you to have the strength to get up every day so that you can perform your duties well in your employ. He is the one who provides all of the sustenance you need so that you can establish wealth in your life. He gives you the ability to create wealth. He is our provider. We need to recognize him for that every day. I don't care how little you've got. You need to be thankful. Thankful every day. Provision comes from his hand in particular. And he provides for unbelieving and believing. See, God, God just loves everybody. He loves, he loves people that you don't love. He likes people you don't like. Matthew 5 says he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. 
He causes the rain to come upon the just and the unjust. And some, some people interpret that as being blessing sun, curse rain. No, 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 no. Not good and bad. Good and good. Every time rain's mentioned in the, mentioned in the Bible... It's always a blessing because then they had stuff that, that helped their crops to grow. Rain was good. He causes good stuff to happen to everybody. And, and just by the way, never, never, never be covetous or envious. Synomic terms. Never look at somebody else's stuff and wish it was yours. And then be mad at them for having it and you, you don't. Especially that you're a believer and you know the covenant of God is supposed to provide for you and the Lord's going to come and minister to you and, and give you stuff and bring you into places and open doors for you. And then you see your, your, your neighbor who you don't like driving a Maybach. And something on the inside of you just says, I cannot believe. Everybody's saying, what's a Maybach? It's a car. <laughs> a very expensive car. I can't believe the Lord is blessing them when they aren't even serving him. And I'm over here driving a 15-year-old 250,000 Toyota Corolla. What is wrong with this picture? And all of a sudden, something grows on the inside of your soul of resentment and anger. And though you would not theologically ever postulate that somehow God is wrong, your tone implies accusation. You're providing for them and not for me. And that covetousness and envy will kill you. That'll mess up your relationship with him. Instead, look at it like this. Wait a minute now. My God provides for everybody. Wow, if he is providing them and they don't love him. That's a testimony about how he's going to provide for me. Hey, go make some more money. Make, some, make more and more because every time you make more, I realize his mercy. And if it's extended to you, it's going to be definitely extended to me. Let it be a testimony of what God wants to do for you. He provides routinely because he cares. And then he provides supernaturally. There are those moments when his routine provision seems to have spaces in between. Anybody live there for a minute? Where there just wasn't enough money to, to, to satisfy the month? Where you, you, you found yourself lacking in some areas, you didn't know what to do? And all of a sudden, faith kind of sprouted wings and flew away and you got scared and anxious and fearful and you began to question whether God was with you. Hear me. God is using those as moments of test that he might create a testimony in you. He wants something to be produced on the inside of you that is able to look at the circumstances and not let the circumstance define how you respond, but to keep your eyes on God who has said he's going to bless you and help you and the circumstances are simply those which are subject to change. And he is going to rearrange life in order to make sure that you are provided for, i.e., the widow at Zarephath. Pastor Jim mentioned it in the, in the transition today. Here was a woman who was a widow, had a son, in the midst of a famine. A widow in that society was at the bottom of the economic ladder, the social strata she was right there at the bottom there's nothing really she could do to try to better her situation there was no equal pay equal work you needed a man's back in order to help provide for the family especially in difficult times because if there was a drought everybody was dependent upon well water well what if your well dried up you needed a good man to go out and dig a new one but if you're a widow you had nobody 
What you going to do? Elijah's there. He called the drought. The brook at which God told him to go and be provided for dried up. And now he says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Zarephath was not in Israel. It was in Sidon, which is what we would now call Lebanon. He had to go a long way to get out of Dodge to find provision. And God says, I have a widow there who I've appointed to provide for you. And, and I imagine Elijah had to at least think in his mind, if it did not come out of his mouth, is that the best you've got? Widow. Widow, really? That's the, that's the best plan. All right. Must be. <laughs> I'm going. So he goes, and he goes to the city of Zarephath, and there he is at the gate. And he sees a person collecting six. He doesn't know which widow it is yet. And he asks this woman, in the midst of a drought that he caused, could you please give me a drink of water? This is a stranger asking another stranger in the midst of a drought for a drink of water. Now the woman doesn't respond how, how most of you might respond. You ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> Do you know what we're going through? Drought. Drought. Yeah. You want what Water. Ain't no water in these parts. What's wrong with you? That's how most of us would have responded. But yet, hospitality dictated how she was going to respond. A desire to serve somebody else rather than herself. Unusual faith in unusual circumstances. She says, okay. And you know all that stuff was going on in her brain. But she says, okay. With that response of unusual faith, Elijah then says, oh, this must be the widow. This must be the one. So, God said she's provided for me. Let's try it. Excuse me. Could you, like, fix me something to eat? At this point, the widow can't hold the tug anymore. Uh, listen, dude. Um, I, I, all I got is a little flour and a flask of oil. Now, if you hadn't heard, we're in a famine and, like, there is no food. And my son and I are going to eat this little bit that I make from this, this little cake, and then we're going to die. That's the voice inflection you do not find by reading. Then we're going to die. Do you know die? D-I-E. Do you know what that means? This is how she was trying to explain her dire circumstances. And then with all the compassion Elijah can muster from a professional minister, he says, yeah, about that last little flower and, and flask of... If you could go ahead and make me that cake first, I'd appreciate it. And you know she's thinking, dude, what's wrong with you? You're a minister. What happened to women and children first? You're taking the lifeboat and leaving us on the boat. What's wrong with you? I got to feed my boy. You want to take food out of my boy's mouth? Have you lost your everlasting? As those words were coming through her throat, formed in her mouth, she instead says, okay. Because Elijah said this, I want you to know, you do this for me first. Neither will that flour or that oil run out into the Lord since rain on the land. Do this first. She says, okay. She goes in there and makes a cake. She brings her boy, sits her beside her. Now, this is Brett making this up, all right? This ain't found in the Bible. <laughs> boy sitting beside her there at the table. The cake's made. She pushes it over across to Elijah. Elijah's sitting there, both of them looking at him. The son is starving. 
And Elijah sits there and eats. Now, he did say this. Afterwards, you can make yourself a cake. So I imagine the conversation went, okay, now get up and make your boy one. She's thinking, with what? Go to the cupboard. Goes to the cupboard. Sees flour in the jar and the flask filled with oil. And her response is this. There wasn't one of these religious, oh, thou is, oh, God, mightiest one, Jehovah. I praise thee for you have seen the affliction of your maidservant and have rained out provision within my pantry. I praise thee. <laughs> and may all of us have the privilege of having a moment. Because now her test had turned into a testimony. Which leads me to my next point. God's into making sure that the stuff you have is able to produce a moment that ratifies and speaks of his covenant in the earth. Says something about his provision. What was her alternative? To eat and die. What is your alternative? To take the provision that God has given you, eat it for the balance of your life, and die. Why not use it in such a way that God could do something supernatural? That's why he's given it to you. It's not so you can eat and die. It's so you can eat and live. And not only you live. Again, this is Brett making this up. She lived in a village that was starving. How many people do you think she was able to make cakes for? How many folks did she invite over to dinner because they had nothing? And the oil never ran out. And the flour never ran dry. Every time she produced her last cake, she went back and it was filled again. See, the ratification of the covenant in you produces a story, a testimony. I was there when there was nothing and God came through. All of a sudden, the covenant is more than theology. It's now experience. You have, you have experienced the particular care of God in your life. You know he is real. You understand what it means to, to be at the precipice of disaster and watch him do something great. Yes. No longer do you have a tendency to forget now your memory is stimulated with an unusual circumstance that others can eat from. And it's not about just ratifying the, the provenness of God in your own life. It's about expanding it so other people... Listen, there are so many folks that don't know which way to go. They have no idea which way due north is spiritually. They don't know what to do in their marriage. They don't know what to do with their friends. They don't know what to do with their money. They don't know what to do with their lack of health. They don't know. They have no idea. They are looking for somebody who's got the covenant ratified in their life, who's got a story to tell and say, it worked for me. It can work for you. They're not looking for good theology. They're looking for good experience. They want somebody that's been through and come out the other side better than when they came in. This is what the covenant is about. And God wants to use your stuff to ratify it. 
Do not let the abundance of provision blind you. Don't let it be the water for the seeds of amnesia to sprout and grow and make you forget who your God is. He's given you the abundance of stuff. And abundance is relative. You might say, I don't have a whole lot. Whatever you got is enough. This widow only had a little bit. Whatever you got is enough. Make sure you are using it to advance his cause in the earth. And though it might seem like Elijah was insensitive, he was simply moving on a principle that is unmovable in Scripture. Seek first the kingdom and all this stuff will be given to you. Make me a cake first. Seemed heartless, cold, callous, uncaring. But he said, you make me a cake first. You provide for the kingdom and the kingdom will provide for you. I know it seems like it's wrong. Counterintuitive it is. But you do it like this. You and your boy don't eat. Watch me eat. And watch how God will make sure you will eat until he sends rain on the earth. Let there be a faith that rises in your soul in the midst of lack that doesn't look to your own needs. That says, Lord, this is seed. It's not bread. I'm going to sow it. I'm going to give to your kingdom. I'm going to give to orphans. I'm going to give to building. I'm going to give to missions. I'm going to give to friends. I'm going to give because I realize that if I seek first the kingdom, you've got my back.